we all want to know where we came from and where are we going. This is a society as a, as a mankind. You know, and we all want to know our place in, in this space and time, right? And so you can't find that out without looking. Hey, y'all. I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. A long time ago, Chris Mullis took the first pictures of a galaxy cluster far, far away. At the time, 20 years ago, he was an astrophysicist making maps of the universe. He stumbled on this particular galaxy cluster actually took the images as a favor for some colleagues. But his discovery led scientists to point the new Webb Space Telescope at the same area. And when NASA released a new photo of that cluster last week, it was the deepest look man has ever had into the early days of the universe. For reasons you'll hear about in this episode, Chris Mullis doesn't practice astronomy anymore, at least not professionally. But his memory of that discovery is still strong. And so is his belief of why it matters to keep looking at the stars. Here's our conversation. How did you find out that the galaxies you photographed all those years ago are the pictures that so many of us have been awed at seeing over the last few days? I think it was alert on LinkedIn from an um, old old colleague of mine, astronomer friend, and hadn't heard from him for quite a while, many years. And you know, to paraphrase the message, which was a shocker, um, it began, hey, um, long time no see. As you know, the Webb Telescope is gonna be releasing its first images on Tuesday. Just wanted to let you know, one of the six objects that's gonna be showcased there is SMAX0732. And that's a cluster you took an image of for us 20 years ago that helped us discover it. It was the discovery image and, and that imaging that you did for us 20 years ago is the reason that uh, JWST, the Webb Telescope, selected that object. So you deserve some credit and just wanted to let you know and get your permission to, to give you a shout out. So that's that's the uh, sort of shout out from the from the dark on a, a big surprise. And I, you know, my reaction was, wow, how cool for those guys, how thrilling and, um, you know, cool, very cool. And, and you had no idea this was coming, right? I had no idea this was coming. You know, I was excited about the first images coming out of web because I, I'm a science nerd and a retired astrophysicist. So uh, I couldn't wait to, to see what we were going to see on t- Tuesday. And, and there was still a little surprise there. Um, because uh, President Biden and NASA were so pleased with that image of that galaxy cluster that they jumped the gun and released the image of that guy on Monday ahead of the Tuesday release. So it, it got even uh, more fast and exciting. I, I want to kind of go back further to when this first happened. My understanding is that this was, you sort of stumbled into taking this image, right? Right, right. So, you know, it, it's sort of strategic luck. Um 20 years ago, I was uh, an active astrophysicist. I have a background in astrophysics. Um, And so 20 years ago in 2002, um, I was a pretty young astronomer and I was working, uh, I was on an observing mission. So I was down in Northern Chile 
uh, and conducting my, my own program down there. And my specialty back then was um, mapping and discovering the large scale, large scale structure of the universe. So kind of building the maps of, of, of the universe on the biggest scale. And so I was there to uh, do my own work, which is hunting galaxy clusters. And uh, the, the time at those big telescopes is very precious and very expensive. And so it's highly choreographed. So I have mapped out every minute of every night that I'm conducting research there to maximize uh, the bang for buck. But uh, I don't have my own, I, I had little gaps in my program where I might have 30 minutes or a spare hour. So I just shot a message to a couple of friends and said, hey, can I, can I do anyone a favor? You know, you got any targets you want me to take a picture of um, when I can slide them in between the primary targets? And so those guys wrote back and said, yeah, can, can you take a couple snapshots of here and here and then there? And so I just kind of slotted those in. So are they sending you like coordinates or something? How does that work? Exactly. Coordinates in, in, the, in the heavens, sort of the, 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 the corollary of latitude and longitude. So they sent me the astronomical lat long. And so I shot some deep images of those locations. They and I were pursuing a strategy um, uh, we're, we're mixed wavelength astronomers. We're both X-ray astrophysicists and ground-based astronomers. So we were both uh, using X-ray emission to try to hunt galaxy clusters. Let me back up. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you're going to have to explain some of this to us too. Yeah, wh why all this intrigue around galaxy clusters? Well, you saw the image from Monday, right? It's, it's aesthetically pleasing and, and beautiful, right? Um, but galaxy clusters are interesting from a a cosmic scientific perspective because they are the largest gravitationally bound structures in the universe. So, you know, I kind of think of them like the continents of the world, right? They're big and meaningful. Why are they there? Why, you know, their shape, their sizes, their distribution, how fast they formed, right? It's very meaningful from a, from a, a cosmic history perspective. So um, mapping out where galaxy clusters are in space and time across the universe and back in history is very telling about the engineering of the world we live in. We use um, the X-ray brightness of a galaxy cluster to help locate them. And then we use ground-based telescopes that work generally in optical and, and uh, infrared light to hunt them down. And those, those X-ray emissions... Is it similar to like light years? Can you tell like how long ago that emission reached us from measurements? Well, um, a little context. The X-ray emission comes from a very hot gas that's trapped in the gravitational well of the galaxy cluster. So the galaxy cluster has dark energy, has visible light constituents, and it has a very hot plasma that glows at X-ray wavelengths. So it's an emitter. We always, you know, on Earth, we think of X-rays as penetrating and, you know, we're at the dentist, we're at the, at the medical office. Well, this is emission. So these are X-ray photons created by the very hot, violent universe and come to us and get detected. Um, and those detections, by the way, are done by space telescopes. X-rays do not get to the Earth's surface thanks to our atmosphere. And so um, that's a good thing because if the X-rays got to the Earth's atmosphere, through the atmosphere, you know, we wouldn't be talking here on the podcast. Right? <laughs> we wouldn't, there wouldn't be uh, intelligent life on Earth. So uh, the X-ray emission is, is a beautiful property of the galaxy cluster in terms of being a beacon because uh, it's a beacon that grabs our attention. And then we bring additional telescopes to get the information like you were seeking. You referenced the distance 
to the galaxy cluster. And the way we do that is by measuring the spectrum of the galaxies that we can see in that cluster of galaxies. So if we take if we take the light of that galaxy and spread it out like a rainbow, we can see uh, chemical features from the galaxy cluster and how far they've been shifted uh, is a, a direct reflection of how far that galaxy cluster is away from us. So that's that's the proverbial redshift. What's the difference between, like in terms of image quality, between the picture you took and the ones we saw the other day? Oh yeah, so <laughs> lots of differences. You know, the, the first one is that, you know, the image I took 20 years ago was from Earth, right? Uh, primarily through a, a, an optical near-infrared telescope. When we say near-infrared, you know, that's the that's kind of super red. It's a little bit more red than you can see for eyeball. Taking uh, images from Earth is like bird watching from the bottom of a swimming pool, right? You've got this material uh, turbulent turbulence along the line. And, you know, if you ever open your eyes under the pool, there's all this distortion, right? And that's how it is doing astronomy from the Earth's surface, right? The Earth's atmosphere creates um, noise and, and distortion. And that's why start, you know, when you look up at night and see stars twinkling, that's the distortion of the Earth's atmosphere. And in fact, it's very telling how stable the, the, the air is over you. So after a big storm rolls through, the stars the next night will be very twinkly because it's this very unstable. So when we were first able to get telescopes off this Earth surface and above the atmosphere, that kicked us up to an incredible level of of um, detail that we can't see from Earth. Now, you know, astronomers and engineers are pretty crafty. Uh, we now have a technology called adaptive optics, where we can shine a laser up into the Earth's atmosphere, monitor the distortion, and then build bend the telescope's mirror to largely reverse that distortion. So we're pretty crafty, but um, you get a telescope above the Earth's atmosphere, uh, you get a much clearer view. And in many cases, for example, I referenced uh, X-rays, you can look at wavelengths that you can't look at on Earth because the Earth's atmosphere absorbs it. So a much more crisp image than possible on Earth. And then the other thing, it's much deeper image, right? That image from the Webb telescope was, was I believe, 12 hours. That's 12 hours with a, a, a telescope that's, um, uh, you know, uh, six, roughly 6.5 meters, call it 21 feet across. That's a bigger telescope than I was using in Chile. I was using one that's uh, about half that size. That is the deepest look we've ever had um, into the universe with that image, right? We're seeing to the very edge of the universe. Help us get a sense of the scale of all this. So, you know, we're in the Milky Way, we're in one galaxy. And I, which I assume for a normal person, you can never ever see even close to the edge of our galaxy. And then this is several or many other galaxies, an incredible vast distance away, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's, we, you know, we live in a pretty interesting spiral galaxy that's beautiful and, and we have cousins around us that we're able to see clearly. So um, we've seen, you know, we have beautiful images of spiral galaxies. That's what we look like. You know, we live kind of roughly halfway out, three quarters of the way out on one of the arms. Um, it, it, a reminder, the reason that you don't look up at night and go, yeah, I get it, is because the galaxy is full of dust. And so that dust and gas obscures our direct view of our, of our host galaxy. But it's also the source of the Milky Way. So if you leave a bright city like Charlotte and go out into the dark countryside, you'll see the Milky Way galaxy. That's our, you know, the arm of our own galaxy. So we, you know, we live 
uh, orbiting a pretty boring but stable. Boring is good. You like a boring star. You don't want an exciting star. You don't want it to, you know, burn you up, right? So we're, we live amongst a, a pretty low mass, boring star in a galaxy. Galaxy clusters, um, galaxies generally don't live alone. They, they, they least live in small families, um, but the big families are the norm. So a galaxy cluster, typically hundreds, maybe thousands of galaxies living together. And uh, SMACS 0732 in the very first image released by the Webb telescope on Monday and, and, and more on, on last Tuesday, uh, that's one of the biggest of the big. So that's thousands and thousands of galaxies living together. And it's super huge, right? It's, it's uh, just hard to wrap your, your, your mind around it. And remember, each of those galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars, right? So we live around one star, there's hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. And then galaxy clusters are hundreds or thousands of those megaplexes of stars. It's a big place, friend. What can we learn from pictures like this, from images like this, from studying? I think you said something a minute ago about you were mapping the large scale structure of the universe. So why is that important? Ooh, that's a loaded question, Tommy. So I'll, I'll answer, let's start narrow and then broaden that. So, um, you know, from a, from a technical perspective, it's interesting and informing. Um, the, the galaxy cluster itself has never had a better portrait made of it. So you'll never get a better picture of a galaxy cluster than the, the web deep field. Um, and so we can study SMACS 0732 you know, to incredible depth of detail. And that allows you, so by knowing, it's sort of like, um, think about studying people, right? If you can, if you can go deep on, you know, think about medically, if you know super deep about someone, you can use that information to help unravel the mysteries of someone else, right? So if we, we know this galaxy cluster deeply, we can use those hyperly insightful learnings to help unravel its cousins, right? So the galaxy clusters itself is, is, you know, the study object, but then it's really a mechanism to, to amplify the distant galaxies in the background. So it's, it's a service it's providing. So, and that's kind of one of the main um, science mission objectives of Webb is the early universe. That telescope was designed um, to, to see further back into history than ever before, right? One corollary I think is, is nice is that um, to think about is the Hubble Space Telescope allowed us to image uh, some of the earliest galaxy clusters visible, but we only got to see them as toddlers. We couldn't see back to when they were babies. So the Webb Telescope will allow us to see even further back in the cosmic history so we can see those galaxies when they were baby galaxies. That gives you context about, you know, how's this universe put together from a scientific structural way um, so that's that's the technical uh, nerd out version. And and you may be alluding to, okay, what do we spend the $10 billion for? Well, that's, I'm sure, I, yes, that's that's part of it too. There's an economic part of this, which I, th I don't think is a strong version of the argument. And scientists love to argue, right? So, and, and by the way, that doesn't play nice in marriages or in corporate world. I, I learned that the hard way. Uh, and so, but, but scientists, uh, you know, give them in their forum, they love to debate. And it's not a debate about being right. It's a debate about getting to the truth, right? And, and yeah, they're all humans and have egos, but the debate truly is driven about revealing the truth. So uh, it's through those biases I try to answer the greater context of why we do this work, right? Um, in no particular order of, of importance. First, it's damn cool. 
Okay. I mean, we all want to know where we came from and where we're going. This is a society as a, as a mankind. You know, and this crosses over a delicate uh, point of uh, uh, the scientific universe and the spiritual universe. We all want to know our place in, in this space and time, right? And so you can't find that out without looking, right? Um, and, and that gives us perspective. And I think it gives us value as human beings and humankind to have that context, to understand how we fit in. I mean, um, you know, my, my wedding band has gold in it. And we now know that that gold didn't exist coming out of the Big Bang. It had to be manufactured in a star. You know, the economic arguments are, are, are valid, but not monumental, right? There's, there's a tremendous amount of spinoffs that come from doing big science. Well, a telescope is big science by definition, right? Uh, you've built the most complex, the most audacious uh, telescope in, in humankind's history to date. You never know what you're going to get when you start. We're talking via Zoom right now, so we're using computers. And, you know, computers use semiconductors and, and microchips, right? That came out of quantum physics, right? So someone was doing something very esoteric to understand how the universe is built. And now we take it for granted. Oh, of course, you got a computer chip, right? I mean, you didn't have it until physics did that, right? Folks are very familiar with going to get an MRI to help understand what's going on in your body. That's nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. That is physics, right? And that, you know, we, we use that to, to be healthier every day, right? And we didn't set out when, you know, some time ago and said, you know, let's do this research to make an MRI machine. That was a spinoff, right? That's a nonlinear you know, happy outcome of doing fundamental research. Science is a process, right? It's not a, it is not a, um, it's not going to the golden corral. It's not a buffet where like, you know, I like this, but I don't like this. So I'm not going to take that, right? It's a process for discovering how the physical universe works. Um, special relativity was discovered by Einstein, right? And it's, it's pretty, pretty nerdy, but, um, you know, it, it has to do with, um, how the space-time fabric is put together. And you and I never interact with a relativistic universe in any way. So it's completely foreign. It sounds like science fiction made up, but without special relativity, a GPS will not work in about two minutes. So how many times have you used Google Maps in your life? I mean, we use it all the time now. Rarely do we actually study a map. Um, if you didn't use what Einstein discovered, relativity, you would be off, off route in two minutes because of not, not having that advanced physics programmed into it. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, remember the original question was, what are we doing this for? It's like, number one, just a no. Number two, all the crazy things that come out of uh, unanticipated things that come out and become normal um, inserts to our comfortable lives. When we come back, Chris Mullis talks about how strangers react to his old job versus his new one. When I was an astronomer, I spent a lot of time on the airplane. When someone found out what I did, we would spend a whole transoceanic flight talking about the universe. I own a financial planning firm. When people hear that, they think I'm an insurance agent and, and they cover their, their wallet to try to protect their money. That and more ahead on Southbound. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts, 
or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Chris Mullis. Let's go back to the beginning then. How did you first get interested in the stars? I, I get, I get, I get all, I get a weird tingle, Tommy, because it just makes me feel happy and grateful. Um, I, I'm a native Charlottean, born and raised here. I was fortunate enough to go to Providence Day School here in town. Um, uh, Bentha Johnson taught me seventh grade earth space science. And, and this is back in the day when Carl Sagan was, you know, all over PBS, the original Cosmos series. Uh, this is the era of space shuttles rocking it. I mean, the space shuttle was like the bomb back then, right? We were, we were launching a space shuttle every three or four months. That teacher, uh, Bentha Johnson, went beyond the call. She, you know, she could have just taught the textbook, but she wanted to bring the universe to us. So we took a little field trip. And it was hosted by the Charlotte Amateur Astronomers Club. And we went out to a dark site and uh, we, I'd never, I'd never looked through a telescope and it was this sort of a lightning bolt going off. I'm like, this is amazing, Tommy. This is really cool. We looked at Saturn. Uh, we looked at a distant galaxy and through an amateur telescope, this is not like a space telescope view. You know, you're seeing a dark fuzzy thing. You're like, what is that? It's like it's a hundred it's hundred billion stars. It's amazing. And I asked the guy running the telescope, I must ask him 20 questions. And he was, he was just worn out by me. And he basically, he said, kid, why don't you come to the uh, club meeting? That hard to get to know man turned out to be the greatest mentor of my life. His name is Gail Rigsby. He's a uh, mechanical design engineer by trade. He can build anything. He became uh, a really close confidant of me. And that's, that's how I got into astronomy. Uh, and then we, we sort of at school, I started doing science fair projects and started building things and uh, observing. And, and it was this sort of laser, laser focus. I'm like, this is, this is what I'm on this planet to do. What are some other things that you ran across or saw or experienced that you think of as sort of highlights or moments that you remember really vividly? Simple things to me grab my attention. Like, um, well, I, I don't want to diminish the complexity of studying planets, but planets are a different species, right? From galaxy cluster, right? And so um, the very first image I ever looked at as a student was Saturn. And I think Saturn's got to be the most amazing thing to ever see through a telescope because it feels three dimensional. It really feels like you can reach out and grab the rings. And it's because of the complexity, the shadowing that happens between the planet. So that was the first image I ever looked at as a student and an amateur astronomer. And I even drove long distances to go sit in with fellow planetary uh, astronomers when they were doing studies of other planets, because I just think planets are cool. Um, the Cosmic Background Explorer Observatory, this is a, a satellite that NASA put up. And it, it, it was, and that happened during my, my time. Um, pretty nerdy, but demonstrated that the Big Bang 
understanding of the of, of the origin of what we see now is really it was a foundational moment. Astronomy is very cool. I call it a gateway science. Um, there is something about looking up into the sky at night that's just natural. It's a, it, it attracts us, it awes us, it challenges us, and it happens naturally for kids and adults uh, throughout our lives, I think. And so it pulls you in and, and makes you, it compels you to, to want to learn about it, right? And so it's easy to talk astronomy because we all often feel it. I want to ask a couple of kind of, I don't, they're not dumb questions, but they're just questions that I think everybody who has worked in space or thought about these things has probably gets asked quite a bit. The first is that, you know, I think many of us, especially who grew up in the era of the moon landing and then the space shuttle and all those things, thought maybe wrongly that we would be much further along by now in terms of like walking around on Mars or whatever. As somebody who knows this much better than the average person, are we behind where you thought we would be by now or or should we be surprised at how far we've come? I think both, Tommy. You know, I, I feel that twinge of disappointment. I'm like, yeah, shouldn't we be, you know, to think about what we did as scientists and engineers to get to the moon and do it so quickly. It's, it's almost, I mean, it would be amazing now, right? And this is a long time ago now. From a from a from just human life and, and technology, it's amazing. And so, if you were to maintain that pace, we would have been beyond Mars, right? Um, and and so that's disappointing in a way. That investment was driven by a political drive of American supremacy, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but 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 that was driving the dollars. We weren't there to do the science. I know that, and you know that, and we were there to, for 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 other other objectives. And that's fine. I'm glad we got to go along for the ride, right? Um, but but it is disappointing. And that's why you, you kind of play the other side of like we, we spent $10 billion on on web. Said, yeah, but you know, we we could be further along, right? The other thing that's visceral to me is is this uh, who would have imagined that we would live in a time when we didn't have an American built spacecraft to get into orbit and we're paying the Russians to ride up. In their vehicle, I mean that's a that's not something to be real happy about from a continuity of investment and and getting the job done on your own, right? So that's you know, and but that's the complexities of trying to do expensive things that require uh, a deep, unwavering commitment. But you know, I think we've gotten through a, a kind of a, a a gap in cap capability because now we're in this era of uh, privatizing the space race which is, you know, I think on net a positive thing. Um, and so we're getting back up the curve. I wish we were a little further along. So here's the second question. In all these years of kind of staring at the depths of the universe, do you think there's something else out there besides us? Oh, that's a definite yes, but the details are boring. So the simple answer is super big. So yes, uh, the universe should be teeming with life based on what we know. But the problem is it's so dispersed it's going to be really hard for us to visit each other uh, in a reasonable amount of time, um, and this is this is disappointing from a from people who like the idea of being visited by um, aliens and advanced life forms. Uh, the, the, very, 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 very unlikely to happen in this timeline, um, but I think it would be very reasonable to expect to have a first communication over the next century 
from an advanced life form. The first thing that's going to happen is we're going to get a signal, right? We're, you know, we're not going to get a visit. We're going to detect the um, radio emission of an advanced life form. Uh, so it's coming, but it won't be the dazzling land in Kansas, take us to your leader moment. I mentioned in the intro that you're not doing the thing we're talking about you doing anymore. So could you talk about um, why you decided to leave that field? I selected my profession. I was not, I didn't select it. I was fortunate to discover and love an affinity for astronomy, thanks to my teachers and my mentors, right? And that set my path. Your priorities change as you age. So um, I reached an inflection point in uh, the mid 2000s, and it really comes down to family. Um, my dad had a serious health scare. Everyone, and so I'm living around the planet on, on different sides of the earth, way out of the south. And here, and my the rest of my family has never deorbited Charlotte. We're all all in North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. And so suddenly, a parent, you know, I'm starting to feel the mortality of my parents and the importance of being together. Um, I was fortunate to grow up close to my both of my grandparents, both sets, and I watched my parents take care of their parents. And when you see a parent starting to struggle, like wait, wait. We got to reassess our priorities. And so that started opening my, you know, I wanted to be back in Charlotte and you can't be an astronomer in Charlotte for the most part. Um, and then the other thing from a familial inflection point is we just had our first child and I reflected on the relationship I had with my, my grandparents growing up to be close, to be in the same town with your grandparents, to learn from them, to spend time. That that's something I cherish forever. And to be able to create that, bond or, or nurture that bond that had a lot of meaning uh so that that was the beginning of a i call it the nuclear option leaving astronomy leaving professional astronomy was 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 pushing the nuclear button because that's a massive pivot um spiritually sort of scientifically spiritually and, and practically and and um both of those were very hard for me and you went into financial planning now, this is probably the dumbest possible question but what, if anything, are the commonalities between astrophysics and financial planning? The, the commonalities are if you, if you practice financial planning well, there is a core of, of mathematical problem solving, which is interesting from an intellectual way. If you were a scientific techie nerd like me, there's some great math to be solved. There is a, a level of complexity that rivals the universe in our, our human beings. We human beings are complex beasts, right? The way we think, our emotions, um, how we interact with um, the people that we love, how we interact with our money. That is a complex brew. That is a nonlinear, um, no textbook solved solution that requires interesting study and interaction and diplomacy and uh, testing and solving when it comes down to each individual uh, person that, that I have, the, our firm has the privilege to work with. What do you miss about doing astronomy professionally? I, I, I miss a little bit of these vibes that we get, well, I get. I, I wish, okay, there is a, the easiest way to explain this is when I was an astronomer, I spent a lot of time on the airplane. When someone found out what I did, we would spend a whole transoceanic flight talking about the universe, you know, naturally evocative, emotional, deep, right? I own a financial planning firm. When people hear that, they think I'm an insurance agent and, and they cover their, 
their wallet to try to protect their money. <laughs> and right. And there's no conversation. I just had a great nap on the airplane. Right. My claim to fame while being a, a practicing astronomers, I, I, I discovered the most distant galaxy cluster ever discovered during that time. I mean, it just blew the doors off the previous record. And I remember analyzing those data at two o'clock in the morning, first seeing it. Is that first seeing it, right? You're like, oh my God, you're the only person on the planet that knows this exists. How cool is that? And then you get someone out of bed and like, look at this. Do you see the same way? I, do you see what I'm seeing? This is incredible, right? It's that sort of like, wow, right? That's cool. And do you still dabble? I do. I do. Uh, and, and it's funny because people think like, wow, Dr. Chris, you must have this amazing telescope. And like, you know, I spent my life using the world's largest telescopes and the biggest telescopes in orbit. So I'm like, I've been there, brother. I, I don't I don't need to own it. Right. Um, and so I have this beautiful four inch telescope, little guy that, that that's a that's an elegant workhorse. Um, I'm still involved with my astronomy club. You know, would have they made me. Um, uh, so I, 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 I do dabble. I was, um, I was fortunate enough to be in the desert Southwest last month and, and nerded out in some great astronomy. We visited the very large array, which is a, a constellation of, of, uh, radio telescopes out in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. Um, I think they're in the movie contacts is the famous shot for them. We, we visited Lowell observatory, which is where Clyde Tombeau uh, discovered Pluto. And uh, I awkwardly gotten a debate about is Pluto a planet or not, forgetting where I was. It's, it's the birthplace of it. So, you know, professional astronomers don't think it's a planet anymore. It's a, it's a different thing. But boy, they didn't take that kindly. And then we also went to Meteor Crater, which is another great place to nerd out. Uh, this was important because that crater in Arizona helped convince the scientific community that we get hit by meteors pretty regularly from a Earth history perspective. So yeah, I'm still nerding out. It seems like such a different world that Chris Moss is living in now. For years, he had his head in the telescope, plotting the far reaches of the universe. Now he's earthbound, working on college funds and retirement accounts. But I don't know if those lives are all that different. We have never completely mapped the universe and we have never completely mapped the human heart. There's as much to learn inside our families as there is at the far reaches of the telescope's eye. Inside every living room, there is a galaxy. Chris Mullis will always own a footnote in history. He took the pictures that led to the pictures that give us a better understanding of our place in the cosmos. But we all leave a bit of history written in the dust. That history records how we treat the people we care about. And in some ways, that universe matters more than any other. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.